Hello, this is Terrence McNally. In August 2004, I recorded conversations with Thomas Frank on his book, What's the Matter with Kansas, and with George Lakoff on his Don't Think of an Elephant. Both Frank and Lakoff pointed to blind spots about the way we see the world and how we frame and talk about what we experience and how powerful both can be. Both offered prophetic warnings that progressives were failing to understand or communicate with vast numbers of Americans. What do those conversations have to tell us today, 19 years later? First, Thomas Frank. Terry McNally. Thank you for joining us on Free Forum. Why does the pro-life Kansas factory worker who listens to Rush Limbaugh repeatedly vote for that party? Why do blue-collar workers all over America embrace a moral agenda focused on things like opposition to abortion and gay marriage and support for school prayer consistently vote against their own interests? As Democrats, and Republicans battle for voters in swing states. Thomas Franks looks to his traditionally red-voting native state of Kansas to examine the GOP's success in building those alliances. What can the Sunflower State tell us about why struggling Americans would vote for Republicans and against their own families and their futures? Now here on Free Forum, we explore the lives, the work, and the ideas of individuals that I suspect hold pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at new, innovative, and provocative approaches to business, environment, health, science, politics, and media, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. Now, Thomas Frank, what's wrong with Kansas? The bio on his own website reads, Born on the wild plains of Kansas, Tom pulled himself up by his bootstraps, learned to read, write, and cipher. He likes big steaks, barbecue, and most other meat dishes. Now, let me also add that he's the founding editor of The Baffler, and that's www.thebaffler, B-A-F-F-L-E-R.com, a a book of uh, essays and critiques of culture. He's also the author of a couple of uh, really good books, One Market Under God and The Conquest of Cool. Um, And he was a guest on this show previously when The Conquest of Cool came out, which is an analysis of uh, advertising basically uh, primarily since the uh, 50s and 60s and the co-optation of the rebel posture by advertisers to use uh, the very fact that people might want to rebel as a way to stimulate their consumption. Um, He's a contributor to Harper's, The Nation, and the New York Times op-ed page. Welcome again, Thomas Frank, to Free Forum. How you doing, Terrence? I'm good. That was pretty funny that you re- you read that bio. We put that up there as a joke, and then I just never got around to taking it down. Well, <laughs> I learned to read, write, and cipher. That's right, and I figured you probably did. Yeah. <laughs> You've been ciphering good ever since you got to the University of Chicago. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so first, briefly, uh, Thomas, I always want to ask people a bit about their own past so that listeners get to know the people behind the ideas and the work. Now... What were you like growing up in Kansas? When did you leave? And what made you return there to write this book? Okay, good question. Uh, I grew up in a a very affluent suburb of Kansas City. And uh, uh, I was a a teenage conservative, if you can imagine that. Very different person than I am today. Although I still liked uh, barbecue, steaks, and most other meat dishes. Uh, to refer to that, uh, that yes, 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 yes. Uh, okay, but uh, anyhow, uh, uh, yeah, I, I I was a big fan of Ronald Reagan, if you can imagine that. And what had happened, I uh, you know, as I look back on those years, I I sort of internalized the uh, uh, you know the, the the politics of the world that I was growing up in, the adults around me who who were you know all businessmen and all very well to do, and and regarded things like taxation as being fundamentally illegitimate. Government was was you know. Uh, government was just a nest of criminals, and so were labor unions and all this sort of thing. Right. Let me let me just tell you, Thomas, that I think in our teenage years we have all sorts of motivations. I recall my parents, uh, both being from Massachusetts, both being Catholic, both being lifetime lifetime Democrats. I actually was the one in the household who said, "Well, this Nixon guy isn't so bad," you know. 
1960. Wow. <laughs> you know, we rebel in whatever ways we can, or we go along in whatever ways we can. Yeah, Continue. I was, I was basically going along, yeah. uh, and, and uh, what, what changed it for me was when I got out into the wider world and discovered that business wasn't the kind of perfect meritocracy that these adults had told me that it was, and that, uh, you know, the free market system just, it wasn't the, you know, it, it was. It didn't. It wasn't a system that just rewarded people based strictly on their merit and, uh, you know, and was was fair and all that. So, I mean, you know, all all the usual things. And this occurred to me when I when I finally, and so uh, I left Kansas in a, for good about 1987 and uh, moved to Chicago. And uh, why did I uh, go back there to write this book? Well, what happened was. Uh, in about 99 or, or the year 2000 or something like that, a friend of mine, I was at a, I was at a, a, a wedding, and a friend of mine from, from Kansas City was getting married, and, and he said, um, uh, you know, he, he had kept in touch with all the political goings on there, and he said, you know, those people that you grew up around that you used to think were the most Republican people you would ever meet, well, those people are now, you know, the people in this affluent suburb that I was describing earlier, well, those people are now on the left edge of the spectrum back in Kansas and because the state has moved so far to the right. And uh, that was about the same time as the evolution issue. Kansas decided they would, they would fight over evolution again. Right. And uh, that was making national headlines, and that's when I said, "Wow, I, I should, I should, <laughs> I should look into this and see what's happened there." And uh, it sort of coincided with my larger historical interest in the, you know, the problem of or the the mystery of blue collar conservatism, populist right. conservatism. Right. Right. Let me let me say that w- one of the reasons that I w- that I wanted to uh, talk with you, I, I you know, got the book, looked at the book, saw you on C-SPAN and so on, but you're focusing on one of the questions that most troubles me about politics and democracy over at least the last 30, 35 years, yeah. okay, which is people voting against their own interests. Last year, I was asked to guest on a radio show, and, the, and the, the subject was the future of the Democratic Party. I said, you know, I'm not really that that interested in the horse race of the future of the Democratic Party. I said, right. what I'm interested in is what would it take to once again have a party in this country that would do two things, that would serve the interests of the majority of Americans and that would find a way to successfully communicate that fact to voters. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what you're... you're, you're Isn't you're... that funny? And that seems like such a rational thing to want. <laughs> you know, it seems so, so, so normal. And yet... That's kind of what you're after in this, right? Oh, yeah, of, of course. Uh, and, uh, and that's so far... I mean, it's farther... That farther from being, you know, reality than ever, yep. in my opinion, that we are we have wandered off into a, you know, into a, a place where we are so distant from that, where our politics are all about these cultural issues, and if they aren't, then we, you know, if 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 the Democrats start, you know, heaven forbid, you know, return to their roots and start talking about, uh, you know, workplace issues and this kind of thing, then there we have one of our two big political parties is is standing by, ready to invent some new hot-button uh, cultural issue to bring us back onto the path. You know, this year it looks like it's going to be uh, gay marriage is going to be the big the big thing. Right, and if, if they, it, yeah, when you give, or not give, but when a, when a, a group decides that they've got a, a quiver, a, just a, 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 a shopping cart full of cultural issues, and then they've got uh, terrorism, they've got an awful lot of stuff that can sort of fog the mind, don't they? <laughs> Oh yeah, oh yeah. And now let me let me let me see if if I if if your numbers are the same as mine. I thought that there were still fewer registered Republicans than Democrats. You, I think, somewhere I read said that it was uh, maybe they'd passed them. Uh, if I did, I was I think I was in error because I saw the numbers on that the other day, and there are still more Democrats than Republicans. But it's the the margin has been closing since the seventies. And as the independents and f- fail to you know right. to choose it's, it's, grows. It's, it's, what is the Republicans have been moving up slightly? The Democrats have been dropping like a rock, and uh, uh, and that's basically what's happening. Right. Let me what, let me lay out a big question, and then let me identify the show while you get your answer ready. Okay. okay. So this is it. it. What we're saying then is the Republican still a, a slightly fewer Republicans and Democrats, yet the right dominates the White House, the Senate the House, the Supreme Court, much of the rest of the federal courts, the military, a majority of governorships, yeah. and one could say, um, depending on one's interpretation of media, perhaps the media, and how have they been able to do it? Now, let me tell people that you're listening to Free Forum. I'm Terry McNally, and I'm speaking with Thomas Frank, author of Conquest of Cool, One Market Under God, editor of The Baffler that, you can, that is worth checking out at baffler.com. 
or thebaffler.com. And his latest book that we're talking about now is What's the Matter with Kansas? How Conservatives Won the Heart of America. And you can learn more about all of this at his own website, which is www.tcfrank, one word, tcfrank.com. Okay, how have they pulled that off? Well, you've just, I mean, you've really, uh, that's, that's, that is the, uh, the giant picture. But the, the, the thing is that if you were to say that to a Republican, they would immediately, they would immediately point out that, in fact, they are victims and they are on the receiving end of modern life because our culture is still being made by Hollywood and uh, these uh, liberal elites in academia and in the media, you know, in the newspapers and uh, uh, and, you know, just turn on Fox News sometime. These people understand themselves as victims. They are on the receiving end of history. They cannot – the fact that they control all three branches of government is not – never enters into their thinking. They understand themselves as, as, uh, as, 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 uh, as a victimized majority uh, fighting back for their rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's totally how they see themselves. Ever the underdog. Yeah, ever the uh, ever exactly ever the underdog. That's what and that's a you know big part of the appeal of the backlash. This, of the, and by the way, that's my term. I was going to say yes. I was going to say that slow yeah, down I and tell people that, right. I? That's my term for populist conservatism over the years, from the late 1960s up to the present, and it's. Uh, I, I, I consider it as all more or less one phenomenon, even though it, it has many different chapters and many different uh, personalities. But we've been in this, uh, you know, we've been in this historical stage ever since the late '60s, where, uh, you know, where conservatives uh, have become the majority, and you know, are able to win uh, elections in this way and that uh, by talking about these uh, hot button cultural issues uh, and by using the same kind of. Uh, uh, what would you say, conservative pop culture? And when you say backlash, a backlash against? Well, it originally started as a backlash against the anti-war movement mm-hmm. uh, the Viet- in Vietnam, and uh, to some degree, is a backlash against the civil rights movement. And you remember the guy who was its first great leader, was George Wallace. Wallace. Yep. Who was, uh, you know, an uh, overt segregationist? I'll tell you what. Let's let's go down this tributary right now because one of the questions I was going to ask you is the role. Of race in this, yeah. That um, uh, that the that start you know as much as you're saying, sort of, it's about you know it's about these liberal elites and it's it's all the use of the cultural issues. You know, uh, Lyndon Johnson said when he signed the Voting Rights Act, "I've just given the South." You know, the Democrats have lost the South, and they did. And George Wallace, anger over integration, didn't that proceed? And, and at least for a while, exceed any passion over, say, teaching evolution? And how does that fit into, how does that <laughs> yeah. fit into your analysis? Of course, in their minds, it probably overlapped, but that's another story. Yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's some people who think those things go hand in hand right. somehow. I don't know. But how does that fit in your, how does racism and the role of race, at least as maybe the, the, the booster engine that started this? Yeah, well, that's, that's certainly the, the, the case, that the backlash started as a, as a more or less openly racist movement, and uh, it, it, a lot of its early chapters were, uh, you know, were marked by racism. And you think of uh, Nixon's famous Southern strategy. That mm-hmm. was the, the whole idea. There was to was to was to put Johnson's uh, prediction in, into effect, right? And uh, 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 remember Goldwater, who voted against the Civil Rights Bill and who was the first Republican to win Southern states in a very very long time. Uh, and uh, uh, then you have things like the Boston busing riots, or the Willie Horton, you know, TV commercial, or the career of Jesse Helms, or right. Trent. Right. Lott. Let's just remind people, lest they aren't aware, that the Willie Horton commercials uh, were the brainchild of Roger Ailes, who now runs Fox News. Oh, is that true? I didn't Fox know Network. That. Yeah, that was his. That was part. Came out of his shop. Yeah, but what what interests me about the uh, the. The, the backlash in recent years is that it's it's tried to turn its back on this this uh, racist side, and in fact you have I mean right now in the news one of the leading sort of one of the great uh, exponents of, of pop conservatism Alan Key right. you know a, a, a black guy running for the U S Senate in Illinois and he is you know he's a very interesting guy very intelligent uh, amazing uh, public speaker but you know right down the line as conservative as they come and this is one of the reasons why i chose kansas as my uh, as as a state to focus on because you know if the backlash has a future and i think it does it's it's not in the the sort of racial aspect of it i mean right in other words what i'm guessing as i'm as i'm listening to you is that the racism 
was the start, and obviously the the smart the smart Nixon money was was on that. But then, how long can you say we're the victims of racism? This is, I mean, the victims of of integration that that yeah. begins to get a little old. Well, but it, if it's you can, also, yeah, and it's it, that's that's racism is something that is so thoroughly discredited. That's what in I mean. Society. There's almost nobody will stand up. But if for you it. can graft on all these other things onto that right. same feeling, that's right. In fact, the, the backlash often today tries to go the other way and tries to use the. I mean, and they will look for any any like far-fetched you know logical uh, whatever you call it you know any any far-fetched far-fetched way of thinking that they can that will would allow them to call democrats racists they're constantly on the lookout for this whether it's you know the social security issue or school vouchers or something like that they're always looking out for, for something like that because they sense that this is the power of this uh, of this term uh, and you know, in the way that it's been used against them. But this is one of the reasons why I focused on Kansas is because this is a state where the the, the racial side to the the backlash is is relatively you know small. It's, right. it's basically not there. Uh, I mean, it certainly was there in the past, but uh, the issues that, that 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 get people riled there are all uh, uh, the culture issues, uh, whether it's abortion, which is the big one, or gun control. Or uh, evolution, which was, as I said, was uh, you know. What is the st- what is the uh, the situation in Kansas on evolution right now? Well, the, uh, about a week ago they had the Republican primary. No, it was on Thursday, so about five days ago they had the Republican primary, and the conservatives. Uh, we'll get into the story later, I imagine. But the Republican Party there is is a. Uh, is this is this is where the, the backlash uh, uh, war is being fought out? There is within the Republican Party. You have two factions. You have the moderate Republicans who are the old the traditional Kansas ruling class uh, and that's they, they used to be a progressive Republican some of them even used to be liberal Republicans uh, and way is that, back is that Bob Dole Bob yeah, Dole's Bob, Republican Bob Party? Bob Dole would have been on the rightward edge of that but like Nancy Kassebaum, mm-hmm. Landon, even Dwight Eisenhower, mm-hmm. uh, this kind of Republicanism uh, and then uh, in the last 15 years, you've had rising up this group, the, the conservatives, or the, the cons, as I call them in the book, the cons versus the mods. <laughs> but the, the cons all come from working-class neighborhoods throughout the state. And they, uh, they're, you know, this, is, this is the fascinating thing. They, they explicitly describe their war with the moderates as a class war. You know, it's them against the state's uh, the rulers, the traditional rulers of the state. And they're right up front about that. They acknowledge it all the time. The interesting thing is that they're way to the right. That they've this mm-hmm. class revolt that they are engaged in is a right wing class revolt. That's what's fascinating. Well, anyhow, last Thursday they scored a huge victory over the moderates. They they tend to be able to they, they tend to win the primaries because they they have much greater commitment on their side sure. than the, the moderates do because the moderates are all on vacation in August, you know, and the the conservatives are highly motivated people, uh, and they tend to show up on the primary day and and to uh, to win and. They scored a big triumph, and they've uh, retaken the state state board of education. So they're bringing; they'll probably be bringing the evolution issue back in the next, <laughs> oh my the next God. year or two. Yep. So be on the lookout for and, that. And, and, and you'll 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 say, yeah, I'm from Kansas. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I you know I'm I'm now a professional Kansas. That's true. So. That's true. You are now one of the things. And by the way, Tom, the old show I had was an hour. This one's a half hour. So we've okay. got ten minutes, and oh, is that so? We can we can we can consider me jumping into another studio and grabbing another half hour if you've got the time. Uh, it's actually today is a very busy day. For okay, me. I'm sorry. So so we're going to finish then in in ten minutes. So let's go to another piece of this, which is the role of the Democrats. Yeah. And and you at one point uh, used the phrase, or not at one point, more than one point, used the phrase criminally stupid yeah. to describe its strategy and tactics since the 70s. Um, you won't get many arguments uh, in my listenership, but let's let's explain how, where they have gone so wrong. Well, it's, uh, you know, when I wrote the book, I was living in Chicago, and it was all more or less theoretical. Uh, and my argument was that the Democrats have turned their back on the blue-collar voters that used to be their uh, obviously, their main constituency, and they right, were, and still were through the Kennedy years. Uh, yeah, that that was that was who made them the big, uh, the, you know, the dominant national party in the first place. Was when they sort of, you know, in the 1930s were able to start talking about, you know, about issues of social class, economic issues of social class. Before that, we'd sort of been in this kind of, you know, doing the sort of silly culture wars in the 1920s and mm-hmm. prohibition mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And then let's let's rem- let's go back again and say that the, the original wedge was. Racism and was was oh, civil yeah. rights, but Absolutely. but then okay. the Democrats made a bigger mistake. 
in my opinion, what the Democrats have done in recent years has been that's been so catastrophic is to turn their backs on their the traditional working class constituency by moving to the right on economic issues. And you remember Clinton doing this, uh, you know, triangulation they called it, uh, whether it was NAFTA, whether it was deregulation of various industries, whether it was antitrust. He basically uh, adopted the Reagan uh, uh, agenda on uh, on economic issues, and this is something that a lot of people within the Democratic Party had been calling for for a long time. Their answer to every defeat. Whether it's uh, McGovern's defeat in '72, or uh, uh, or, or Gore's defeat in '84, or, or even Gore's in 2000, it's always they've got to move to the right. Look, the Republicans are on the right. We've got to move over there. We got to keep moving to the right. What's funny is that the Republicans, you know, who started out with his own, you know, catastrophic defeat of their own with Goldwater, they never said we gotta we gotta give in. You know, we gotta change course. They kept at it. The conservatives kept at it, and eventually they won. But the Democrats seem to think that the way they're going to win is by constantly trimming and constantly uh, uh, adopting bits of the Republican platform, and then they'll be able to appeal to corporate America, and they'll get the money. They'll be able to appeal to these suburban professional voters. That's who they always talk about. Anyhow, I wrote that in the book because uh, when Clinton signed off on NAFTA, this is, in my opinion, when you know when disaster really commenced for these people. That's when they lost the House and the Senate. And you quote you quote people who I think who, who changed say, their yeah who, who say who you know that was it party registration because yeah. of that in Wichita, a very blue collar town. In other words, and, and let me just make specific that while they didn't necessarily while the Republicans might also have been for NAFTA, they said I used to be for the Democrats on economic issues. Once they go for NAFTA, then I might as well go right. to the folks who I agree with on evolution. That's right. <laughs> or or well, evolution hadn't come up. Yet. Or abortion, abortion or church or anything, yeah. prayer so in school. Said, there's, no longer, there's no longer a difference between the parties on the issues that matter to me. Therefore, I'm going to vote my conscience on this one. You know? And I'm, uh, you know, this is a very religious city, as, as many places are in America. And that's, that's what happened there. Uh, and they lost their Democratic congressman. He was replaced by a far right-wing Republican. Uh, they lost their Democratic mayor, also replaced by a very conservative Republican. And they've been moving to the right ever since. Okay, let me very quickly tell people, because I hate people to tune in and not know who they're listening to. You're listening to Thomas Frank speaking with host Terry McNally on Free Forum. Thomas Frank's new the book, book is, is called What's the Matter with Kansas? So, yep, and, okay, and his, and and his uh, website is so, so tcfrank.com. I, yep. I moved to, to Washington uh, a few months ago. I'd lived in Chicago all these years. I moved to Washington, and since I've been here, I have met many uh, people that I would describe as professional Democrats. They work for the Democratic Party, or they work for uh, some some liberal group that you know that's that's effectively an arm of the Democratic Party. And when I tell them this these stories, and I talk to them about blue-collar issues and workplace issues, they sort of roll their eyes, and they say this. They say, you know, there really is, there is no working class in America anymore. And I'm like, what, are you, what the hell are you talking about? And they say something like, you know, manufacturing is no longer an important part of the economy. It's only like 10% of the workforce or something. You know, you've heard this before. Right, right. And therefore, those voters are not important. The people we have to worry about are these suburban professionals. And, uh, uh, and they've, they've got this all worked out in their own mind, and that's why they they keep the Democrats keep moving in the direction that they're moving, and I, I, I will guarantee you, as sure as the sun is going to rise tomorrow, that when John Kerry goes down to defeat in November, which it now looks like he's going to do, that the Democratic Leadership Council will blame his his loss on the fact that he was too far to the left, and they will they will they will interpret his defeat as uh, as another you know yep. call for the Democrats to move farther to the right, and this will keep going on, and they'll lose again, and they'll and and you know maybe someday they will be become what the Republicans say they are today, which is the party of the liberal elite, of these you know, uh, wealthy Hollywood people and, and, uh, and these wealthy people from Silicon Valley, and, and that's it. Quick question, no Thomas. Class constituency at all. They'll blame it. They'll say, look, what can we do as long as campaigns are based on television advertising and we've got to sp- you know, raise the $250, $300 million, the Republicans, or the 400 you name it, yeah. we've got to do this. What do you say to that? Well, it's uh, you know this has been the case ever since the rise of TV, and I I understand that that worry, that concern, that, but but basically, if that's the case, then you know then then the left is done for. And I want to re- remind you that a guy like Franklin Roosevelt uh, ran for office. The Democrats have always had significantly less money than the Republicans, and in 1936, when he ran against Alf Landon, who was the, at the time the governor of Kansas, Landon was backed by every, all, I mean a huge majority of the newspapers of this country, and back then the newspapers were very 
partisan in their reporting. It was before this is before objectivity, you know. Very partisan. He was backed by Wall Street. He was backed by every imaginable moneyed interest, and they 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 stopped. I mean, they pulled out all the stops to elect that guy, and Roosevelt still won. Right. Uh, and, and won by a you know a thundering landslide. It can be done. You know, also, you the don't other th- just have to have money in this. You think about these people in Kansas, who uh, you know the the moderates, the moderate Republicans are the ones with all the money. And yet the conservatives have been able to beat them in election. And it's funny to be drawing our lessons from the right. I mean, it really is. I know. The conservatives have been able to beat them in election after election because they have more commitment. You're saying passionate grassroots will ultimately trump TV ads. Absolutely. These people go door to door. These people, I I met one woman. These are all working class people. I met one woman who was so uh, dedicated to the issue of school vouchers, by the way, which is itself so utterly you know, bewildering, because Kansas actually, the place where she lives in Kansas, is very good public school. <laughs> so into school vouchers and you know, somehow undermining these public schools. She mortgaged her own house to, you know, to, to further her campaign for, for school vouchers. I mean, these are people, she put herself into debt to fight for an issue that is going to harm people like her in the long run. Yeah, this is, this is the thing that drives me the craziest. Because we've only got a half an hour, I'm going to have to wrap this up. Um, be, become, I'll come back to you in one second here. The book is What's the Matter with Kansas? The website is www.tcfrank.com. I've been speaking with Thomas Frank. Thank you to you, my listeners. I look forward to being with you again next week. In the meantime, if you have questions or comments, if you'd like CDs, tapes, or transcripts of past interviews, or if you want to get my weekly email announcements of what's coming up on the show, email me at T-E-McNally, one word, T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, T-E-McNally at A-T-T dot net. You've been listening to Free Forum with Terry McNally. The book is What's the Matter with Kansas. Thanks a lot, Thomas. Keep up the good work. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Okay. Hello, this is Terrence McNally. Stay tuned in the second half for my August 2004 conversation with George Lakoff on the advice in his book, Don't Think of an Elephant. Hello, I'm Terry McNally. Thank you for joining us on Free Forum. On George W. Bush's first day in office in the year 2001, the phrase tax relief started coming out of the White House, and it still is. It was used a number of times in this year's State of the Union address and shows up in campaign speeches four years later. Today's guest... George Lakoff points out that that simple phrase is an ideal example of the Republicans and the right's skillful and consistent use of framing. Think of the framing for relief, he points out. For there to be relief, there must be an affliction, an afflicted party, and a reliever who removes the affliction and is therefore a hero. And to try to prevent that hero from giving that relief, well, those people are villains. So the Democrats tend to counter with their version of tax relief, and there they accept the conservative frame. The conservatives have set a trap. The words draw you into their worldview, and this is what framing is all about. Framing is about getting language that fits your worldview and having that be the language that the conversation takes place in. Here on Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, and the ideas of individuals that I suspect hold pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at new, innovative, provocative approaches to business, environment, health, science, politics, media, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. George Lakoff is a professor of linguistics and cognitive science at the University of California, Berkeley. He previously taught at Harvard and the University of Michigan. He's the author of Metaphors We Live By, Moral Politics, How Liberals and Conservatives Think, and most recently, Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values, and Frame the Debate. Lakoff is also one of the founders of and a senior fellow at the Rock Ridge Institute, a progressive think tank in Oakland, California. One of the goals of the Rock Ridge Institute is to reframe the terms of political debate to make a progressive moral vision more persuasive and influential. You can learn more about their work and George Lakoff's work at www.rockridgeinstitute. That's one word, rockridgeinstitute.org. Welcome, George Lakoff, to KPFK and Free Forum. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. First, briefly, I always like listeners to get a little feel for the people behind the ideas. So why did you become a linguist, and when and how did you turn your attention to politics? Well, I became a linguist uh, way back in uh, the 1960s, uh, simply because it was uh, very interesting. Uh, I was extremely interested in how the mind worked, and uh, linguistics was a very good way to get at it. Uh, I got into politics later on. Uh, I um, 
was involved uh, in the 1980s in uh, looking at the language of uh, uh, discussion between the Soviet Union and the U.S. Uh, during the Glasnost period. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as I was doing that, uh, I um, started looking at U.S. foreign policy and the framing behind U.S. foreign policy, and particularly the metaphors used to define U.S. foreign policy. And um, that uh, got me into, uh, uh, during the Gulf War, uh, doing a critique of the, of the um, way that U.S. foreign policy was used during the Gulf War. Then um, later on, a few years later, 1994, uh, I was uh, looking at the 94 election, reading uh, the contract with America and so on, and I got very confused. Uh, The confusion was simple. I looked at the positions of conservatives and liberals, and I asked myself uh, of conservatives, I'm a liberal, uh, why should anybody uh, who uh, is against abortion also be for the flat tax? What does taxation have to do with abortion? Mm-hmm. And then I asked, well, why the people who are against, who are for the flat tax, uh, why are they in favor of tort reform? And what does tort reform have to do with um, uh, any of the other positions, uh, positions on foreign policy, being against the United Nations, and so on. If you start looking at the various policies that um, uh, you know conservatives have, they don't seem to fit together uh, in any rational way. And so uh, I said, gee, this is very odd. Uh, suppose that I look at my own views, which are exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. How do they fit together? And I got embarrassed. Because the same was true. The same was true. I couldn't explain it. And uh, so I started doing, doing this um, as a problem in cognitive science and linguistics. I asked, uh, what could uh, define a worldview so that all of these things made sense? Because I'd actually studied a lot of things like this before. I'd studied conceptual systems and worldviews. And what I found was typical of differing worldviews. When you go to talk to a conservative, um, the conservative will say, uh, you know, that liberals are irrational. You talk to liberals, the liberals will say conservatives are irrational. You ask, for example, a liberal friend, um, what do they think about why are conservatives irrational? They say, how can you be pro-life and for the death penalty? Mm-hmm. Okay. You talk to a conservative friend, and they say, how can you liberals not want to put a murderer to death, but sanction abortion. (laughs) And everybody thinks the other side is irrational. Now, this is extremely common, and so I tried to figure that one out. And in doing the research, I uh, started looking at linguistic phenomena, in particular the language of morality. Mm -hmm. I had done a big study on the language of morality and on the metaphors around the world used for, for morality, and found that liberals and conservatives had different metaphors for morality. So I started listing them. Um, you know, for example, who talks about, you know, backbone most mm-hmm. of morality? And uh, again, I just didn't understand it. I had a nice long list. And I was trying to figure out what would explain it. And finally, I went to um, uh, the family values literature. And I started looking at that, and I realized that a student of mine had done a paper on the metaphor of the nation as family. And so I said, okay, let's look at what that metaphor would say. I mean, after all, we have founding fathers. That's right. And everybody, nobody questions it. Nobody says, what? What yeah. do you mean? You know? <laughs> they all understand that perfectly well. So I worked out the details of that metaphor, and I said, look, if we have two different views of the nation, uh, maybe we have two different views of the family. So I basically put what I had, uh, you know, my my list of mysteries into the output of this metaphor, looked at what the input would have have to be to explain it, and out popped two views of the family, a strict father family and a nurturant parent family. So let me repeat those. That's a strict father 
or a nurturing parent. And by the way, let me tell people that you're listening to Free Forum. I'm host Terry McNally speaking with George Lakoff, professor of linguistics at the University of California and author of Moral Politics, How Liberals and Conservatives Think. Most recently, Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values and Frame the Debate. And you can learn more at www.rockridgeinstitute, rockridgeinstitute.org. And where we're getting to is the two different moral frames that conservatives and progressives or liberals hold, and it's how they see the world. Nurturing parent on one hand, strict father on the other. Okay, well, here's how it goes. Um, if you are, uh, have a strict father view of the family, then uh, you generally have the following background assumption, that the world is fundamentally dangerous, that uh, there, it is fundamentally competitive, that there will always be winners and losers, uh, and that children are born bad in the sense that they just want to do what they want to do uh, rather than uh, to do what's right. Uh, you need a strict father, therefore, in the family to uh, defend the family in the dangerous world, support it in the competitive, difficult world, and to teach kids right from wrong. And the assumption is the only way to teach kids right from wrong is some sort of punishment, either a withdrawal of love and affection uh, or physical punishment, uh, which is the, norm, the usual kind of case. Uh, although withdrawal of love and affection is a, as a punishment is another form of it. Now, um, in this, there's uh, a consequence. The assumption is that if a child is punished, uh, you know, when he does wrong, then he will learn not to do wrong. That is, he will become internally disciplined and therefore do what's right and not what's wrong. Mm -hmm. And the assumption also is that this is the only way that moral people are created. Mm -hmm. And then they have also an interesting idea of what moral people achieve. Exactly. That is, if you are disciplined enough to be moral, then you're disciplined enough to pursue your self-interest and become prosperous. So prosperity and morality are linked together, and if you're not prosperous, then you're not disciplined. You're lazy, you're you know, uh, not able even to be a moral person. So uh, that is part of, the, uh, of that worldview. And so the good children are the ones who become disciplined and therefore can be both moral and prosperous, and the bad children are those who lack discipline, uh, who need to be supported, and uh, also who you know, basically cannot control themselves well enough to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And so once you – now, for those who maybe turn in the middle of that, I'm speaking with George Lakoff, and he kind of worked backwards from looking at the positions conservatives and liberals take in our current political world and then saying what, what unites them settles on this idea of it's a, it's a moral view of the world. It's a, it's a morality – and then what you found was you could end up with that moral view, the strict father or the nurturing parent, kind of everything would sort of fit together then. Yeah, it all makes sense. For and I think, I think that, that part where the, the achievement of wealth and success equates with being a moral and good person is kind of the real cherry on the top of it because it, it then – it, it adds kind of almost another layer to all of this that allows, you know, tax cuts for the rich to be a positive thing. Um, let me ask then, just so people can get this, that's the investigation you did. You say there's a scientific basis in neuroscience and cognitive science for this, just so that people don't think, oh, this is George Lakoff's good idea. Um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, first, we know... Uh, from a lot of studies in cognitive science uh, that people think metaphorically. That's not exactly strange. That most reasoning is unconscious. This is usually not something you're aware of. And, um, and that people uh, think in terms of conceptual frames, that all words are defined relative to conceptual frames, and conceptual frames are instantiated there in your brain. So that you know, once you uh, have a certain way of thinking about something, uh, the fact is not going to alter that. And so, yes, they're there in your brains. 
Okay. Um, now, just for, again, just a quick example to flesh this out and, and try to make this one brief. I've, I've got a, a number of questions for you, and we're about halfway through, or nearly so. Um, Reagan and Clinton are pretty much uh, acclaimed as our top two natural political personalities of the last 30 years. Did they demonstrate this? And can you show listeners how they did so they begin to get the idea in practice? Sure. Uh, let me talk first about what the nurturant model is. And oh, good. Yeah. Clinton I'm sorry. Very well. Uh, the nurturant model uh, says that um, your job as a parent is to nurture your children and to raise them to be nurturers of others. And that's two things. Nurturance is empathy and responsibility, both for yourself and for others. And therefore, you're to raise your children to be empathetic to others and to um, uh, be responsible for themselves and others. And from empathy, you get a lot of values in a nurturing parent family, which turn out to be exactly the progressive values. So uh, if you care about your children, you'll protect them. Uh, And so you get things like worker protection, environmental protection, uh, consumer protection, and so on in politics. Um, If you care about your children, then you'll want them to be fulfilled in life, and therefore the government should want the uh, citizens to be fulfilled in life. And you can't be fulfilled if you're not free, and so um, freedom becomes a value. That's why liberty and the pursuit of happiness go together. Uh, Then you have fairness. You want your child to be treated fairly. Uh, So fairness becomes a value. Uh, There's no freedom without opportunity and no opportunity without prosperity. So creating opportunity and prosperity become progressive values. Uh, Then uh, you don't live alone. As Hillary Clinton says, it takes a village Mm -hmm. for a child. Uh, Community, building community and maintaining it is a value. And community service is a particular value. You can't uh, function in a community without cooperation. No cooperation without trust, no trust without honesty and open communication. So cooperation, trust, honesty, and open communication become progressive values. And that's it. <laughs> From the, those, you get other progressive values mm-hmm. of equality. But basically, that's the set. So now you've seen laid out the two, the, right. the strict parent and the nurturing family, and and they allow you sort of as a, as a bucket or a, or a, a basket to, to kind of hold and draw from all your stands really on an awful lot of positions. So again, a quick example of Reagan with his strict parent and uh, Clinton with his nurturing family. Well, Clinton, first, uh, you look at him and you say, there's a nurturer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he feels your pain. He connects with you. That's what he's about. And that's what his policies were about. His policies were about uh, trying to help people, as he says, helping people to help themselves. Mm-hmm. That is, to become, uh, become self-reliant, but giving them the care that was necessary. And that's crucial throughout all of, the, of what he was saying. Now, Reagan had uh, the other idea that, uh, you know, uh, people should help themselves, period. That is, they need to be disciplined and... Uh, if they're not disciplined, uh, you know, then they're worthless. So the idea here, he would rail against welfare. Why? Right. Well, in a strict father family, um, you're, you're not supposed to become dependent. You're supposed to become independent through being disciplined. Well, uh, think about what that says about social programs. It says social programs give people things they don't earn and therefore make them undisciplined and therefore make them dependent. So it's actually immoral. To give them that hand, because you're then creating you're you're creating a weak morality right, for them. True. And the other piece of this is is that um, the unfettered free market is is based in that strict father morality. So anything that follows from that, right? That if a corporation is successful, it's because they've and and the and the, and the owners of that corporation are successful. It's because they've had the discipline and they've. They've done the things necessary. They're moral people, and thus that's why they're successful. That's exactly right. That's why the democratic argument against uh, tax cuts going to the top 1% doesn't hold any water with poor conservatives who say, well, they're rich, they earned it, they deserve it. Right. It, it just, uh, you know, they, uh, basically, um, there's a, a false understanding 
of the electorate among Democrats. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Democrats seem to believe that voters vote their self-interest. Right. Or in fact, or they get very, uh, and I myself included, get very frustrated by the fact that they don't. Yeah. Like there must be some magic key here that's going to get them to vote their self-interest, and, and then everything will turn around. Right. And, and you're saying that perhaps the key is a change in framing. Let well, me, let me ask... Voters vote their values. And their identities, right? The candidate right? who represents their values. So poor, poor conservatives look for a strict father candidate. Mm-hmm. So even though that strict father might not actually serve their interest, their their interest, their self-interest is trumped by their values and their identification with the successful and the strict. Exactly right. And boy, is that a tough one. So um, let me uh, let me ask for a clarification of how a couple of things fit into this uh, this ag- this agenda, this analysis. And let me tell people again, you're listening to Free Forum. I'm Terry McNally speaking with George Lakoff. He's a professor of linguistics at uh, UC Berkeley, author of Moral Politics, How Liberals and Conservatives Think. That's a sort of a lengthy book that really lays this out in a big way. And then recently of a book that you can pick up through a number of uh, progressive uh, websites or Amazon or probably Rockridge, which is called Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values and Frame the Debate. Um, I have it here. It's how many pages? I'm sure you know. It it's, comes out just over 100. And it is basically it's – it's more than the cliff notes – but it, it's a workbook, basically. It's, it's a how-to. It's, it's if, if you want to learn how, what's going on and how to begin to reframe, pick up Don't Think of an Elephant. And the website is www.rockridgeinstitute, that rockridgeinstitute, one word, dot org. Um, let me, I have taken to uh, giving my best take on advice recently, and I would love to give you a couple of the things I've been saying. This was like my unsolicited advice to carry in the campaign. And see your uh, framing analysis of where I'm on the mark or where I'm not, because I think this begins to get us into into the, the nitty gritty. Okay. One thing I said a few weeks ago was that people get their messages by telling stories, and uh, uh, maybe these wouldn't be the trivializing stories. That this is what I said at the time, and now as I've been thinking about your stuff, maybe I was being too condescending there of the welfare mom in the Cadillac. Okay, that Reagan used to used to go to, but that there is a story in every communication, and your communication either tells a story or fits and reinforces a larger story, and that the right. All their claims and attacks tell stories, flip-flop, nuance, sensitive, all part of a story. Trial lawyer even tells a story. War on terror, war president tells a story. I'd even say Massachusetts, when they say it, tells a story. And that you cannot fight a story with facts. You fight by offering a different or better story. Then people will listen to your facts. Is that similar to framing? That's exactly what it is. Uh, Look, take trial lawyer. Um, what you have, uh, there's a particularly vicious commercial uh, against that Edwards that came out uh, very recently. Um, I just viewed it this morning on the web. Uh, what you have is the, the view that it's uh, trial lawyers uh, who, are, one, that they're greedy, two, that all their lawsuits are frivolous, and three, that it's, that, that it's only the trial lawyers who are increasing the cost of health care. Mm-hmm. Right? Utterly false, every single one of those. But uh, what I've suggested, was, you know, which the campaign has not adopted at all, is to reframe simple. Trial lawyers uh, are public against uh, unscrupulous and negligent companies. And that you would think, people. having had the uh, CEO and, and major corporation uh, corruption uh, scandals of the last few years, that that would uh, have, have some, have the, you know, would, have, would land these and not days. Not only that, tobacco. I mean, of course. we have lots of cases like this, and moreover, this is the last line of protection you have. If you're a little man, this is it. This is it, because once the, the doors to the courtroom become closed, once the juries can no longer uh, uh, you know, say that these guys have to be fined $100 million, uh, then you have no protection uh, at all 
against unscrupulous or negligent corporations. And one of the things that you point out that's a detail in this is that they will say, well, we're only talking about the excessive ones. We just want to cap uh, cap the penalties, cap the punitive damages and so on. What that does is that disincentivizes those lawyers who would want to take on these cases. That was, and, and when you do that, it's a chilling effect that you don't have to legislate them against taking them on. They just will be less likely to do so. That's exactly right. So right. what will happen is, as soon as you cap these things, you make it economically impossible for uh, lawyers to take on the cases because those lawyers have to put in uh, a huge investment right. in each case. Right. Um, and let me let me go to another one then. Um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I said, more than ever, America craves authenticity. Bush enjoys a, quote, unfair advantage, my term, because he means what he says. And that was a lot of Howard Dean's appeal. Clinton and Bush have a gift that they can mean whatever they say. Kerry does not. That means he has to tell the truth. He has to stop calculating and second-guessing what swing voters want to hear. Speak his truth over and over again. And for every swing voter he loses, he'll gain many, many more um, undecided, uh, not undecided, but but probably people who weren't going to vote at all who go, oh, there's two authentic candidates running. Now I can listen to their views. But until he'll never make it a debate on the issues until people see him as equally authentic to George Bush. Well, I think that's right, but he has to do even more than that, Okay, which he start, started to do. Uh, he has actually started telling those truths, uh, and he has to show that Bush is not authentic. There you go. That is that Bush is And can that be done? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there are several ways in which he gets done. Uh, the first is what he's already started to do, that he's not leveling with the American people. He's not telling them about how, how badly the war is going. Mm-hmm. He uh, wasn't telling them that there weren't any weapons of mass destruction. He was, you know, uh, colluding on this, that, and the other thing. That's there, you know, there's a huge, there's a whole website called Misleader. Oh, yeah. And Move On sends out one every day. Every and day. Greenwatch sends out one on the environment every day. Yeah, yep. yeah Greenwatch on the environment. And then this camp, the uh, CAP, Center for American Progress. Sends out the progress report every day. Exactly. By the way, let's give out these addresses. That's moveon.org. That's, is it CAP.org? Or? No, it's, uh, it's um, oh. not true. Center for American Progress. Yeah, just put, put in Google. Center for American Progress. These people will send you every day an update on some deception, some misleading, something like that, that you make, can then use as fuel when you're staging your arguments. Let me ask you a third one. And this is the one that suddenly struck me last night, and I want to know how it fits a frame. And that is that these, this administration are ideologues probably a word you can't use, true believers, maybe a word you can't use, but that they ignore evidence and facts that contradict their beliefs. You look at tax cuts, you look at the war in Iraq, you look at global warming, they just don't care. You could even look at the Medicare bill, AIDS prevention. They don't care about facts. They've got a belief and they're following it. Is there a way that that can be framed in a way that's persuasive because it's so consistently true? Well, they're basically in denial. And they're in denial about... uh how their ideology fits the world. But there's a further problem with that, which is they may truly believe what they say. Mm-hmm. That is, if you have a frame that is so strong that every everything you do and everything you see has to fit that frame, you may not even notice what, uh, you know, what the facts are. Since your frame defines what common sense is, uh, then uh, any facts, facts will just seem nonsensical. They would have to be wrong. So how do you put this in a way that someone who doesn't necessarily agree with them but is being kind of pulled along by their, um, by their, by their apparent authenticity, well, by, by that, that wonderful contr- – I mean they set, up, they set up before Kerry ever won the primaries that if he was the winner, flip-flopping was going to be the accusation. Well, I mean you can say, look, they're kidding themselves. They're in denial. They're constantly – uh, you know, uh, they want to believe what they say, but it ain't true. And once you can set up that frame, and then, this is what I'm thinking, is you don't have to then make a paragraph-long critique as an answer all the time. You go, see, there they go again. Yeah. Boom, there yeah. they go again. There Am I correct that this is, yourself again. this is the shortcut that, that they use that we need to use? Exactly. You need to have some two-word thing, whether it's, you know, there, <laughs> you need to take Reagan's there you go again and yep. just add something like there you go again. Still kidding yourself. Yeah. And, and, and then finally, the, the sh- upshot is, you know, okay, they're doing it, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. 
It's dangerous in a world that we're in now. It's dangerous in the deficits we're creating. It's dangerous, and so it's not harmless. It's 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 dangerous. It's hurting you. It's already killed a thousand of our guys. Right. Okay, I've got to close us. This has been great. Uh, The book is Don't Think of an Elephant. Know Your Values and Frame the Debate. You can get it from several sites on the net, um, uh, the ones we mentioned. And and, uh, George Lakoff's website, where you can learn more about this, is rockridgeinstitute.org. One word, Rockridge Institute. To get in touch with me, email me at temcnally, one word, at att.net. T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at att.net. For CDs or tapes of past interviews, transcripts to suggest guests, or to get on my weekly announce list of what's coming up on the show. Um, You've been listening to Freeform with Terry McNally. Thank you, George Lakoff. Keep up the good work. It's a pleasure to be here, Terry. Hi, it's radio veteran Nicole Sandler. Sadly, the radio we all grew up listening to no longer exists. The industry in which I worked for 40 years has been decimated. I turned up the radio. I can't hear it. Thanks to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, a handful of giant corporations control what you hear on the so-called public airwaves all across the nation. But times have changed. Turn it up, turn it up, a little bit higher. Radio! It's the 21st century, and at Progressive Voices, we're reclaiming our time. Radio. Radio, your way. Progressive Voices, Stephanie Miller, Tom Hartman, Randy Rhodes, Nicole Sandler, Brad Friedman, Mike Malloy, and many more. Download the free Progressive Voices app, now powered by TuneIn. Speaking truth to power 24-7 on the Progressive Voices Network. Hi, this is Randy Rhodes right here on the Progressive Voices Network. The Randy Rhodes Show. Smart, forward, free-thinking, entertaining, bringing you liberal news and opinion that challenges the status quo and amplifies free speech. Every weekday afternoon, 3 to 5 Eastern. Hi, it's Randy Rhodes. Listen to me on the PV live stream or on demand or both on the PV app. Just go to ProgressiveVoices.com or download the Progressive Voices app. If you want 24-7 access to everything progressive on the mobile internet, download the Progressive Voices app at ProgressiveVoices.com. The PV app is a one-stop shop that aggregates everything progressive. News, blogs, audio, video, opinion, then thoughtfully curates, prioritizes, and presents the progressive content. The purpose is to create a progressive media universe, an alternative to the one controlled by cable operators, radio station owners, and newspaper publishers. That's the PV app at ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Progressive Voices desperately need your financial help. Please go to ProgressiveVoices.com and press the Donate button right now. Thank you. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. What up, Ohio? Yeah. What? What? 40 points. Yep. Don't F with us, Don't boys. with us, boys. We're just going to quote old-time movie queens. I like Lauren it. Lauren Bacall. done away. Yes. Yeah. Don't F with us, boys. This ain't our first time at the rodeo. Okay. I, okay. I have an encyclopedic knowledge wow. of that script. 40 points. Ouch, Republicans. Yeah. Ouch. How'd that dirty trick work for you? Someone was on CNN last night about 10 o'clock saying, oh, we still have boats out there. We uh-huh, can still yeah, win. I we saw that. Win. Like, no. It's real good what you did. Yeah, uh-huh. Carrie Lake is saying that it was rigged. No, oh, she's she not. You made that up. Yeah. I'll find it. Okay. Issue one, yes, projected to fail, uh, dealing a blow to Ohio Republicans 
who are uh, sneaky bastages and wanted to hamstring the ballot question on abortion rights in November. Um, holy crap. Yeah, almost 40 points. Yeah. Uh, rights like 70-30, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, revol- results showed voters in urban counties voting overwhelmingly against Issue 1. Uh, tonight, Ohioans claimed a victory over out-of-touch corrupt politicians who bet against majority rule, who bet against democracy, said the Ohio Democratic Party chair. Um, ha-ha. And neener, neener. And then nanny boo-boo. Stick your head and do it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, could you uh, ready my Howard Dean? Andrew uh, says, every time Americans have been given the opportunity to vote on abortion access slash reproductive rights, they have overwhelmingly voted to protect them. Uh, California. <laughs> Tech, <laughs> Kansas. Sorry. Kentucky. <laughs> Michigan. Montana. Vermont. And now Ohio. The same scenario <laughs> will play out everywhere, GOP. Everywhere. And also... Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices.